0: Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writer's Program.
1: Realizing that other people, through no fault of their own, lacked the same power, and then they dropped out. Instead of using that privilege to help other people, they did their best to throw it away.
0: This program features the work of 2017 writer Calvin Gimpelovich. Curator Jordan Amani-Keith sat down with him in the studio.
2: Can you tell me about your project, Tenderloin, and why... Is politics and sexuality and gender an important thing for you to to bring forward in your work?
1: So it is like a very intricate plot, and so far it's very long and has 12 perspective characters. But it's going through San Francisco, an alternate present of San Francisco, and activists and politicians and people from all different sides of the political spectrum also people that are being talked about by politics but don't necessarily insert themselves in it, like people being arrested or people whose lives are just impacted by the laws going out, people who are undocumented immigrants in the book. And then it eventually ties back into the 1970s in the Bay Area, which is because I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and grew up feeling very influenced by the history of the 60s and 70s without understanding the context or how it shaped the present, and it feels very relevant right now. Because I've been working on this novel so long, there's a lot of layers, and over the last eight years, I became very interested like in alternative and radical politics, especially at the beginning. I came from the outside being like, I'm gay and I have these feelings, and I was a vegan when I was 20, and I'd organized a protest when I was 18 against the Military Commissions Act, and I had a lot of very strong political feelings, but they weren't very nuanced, and I kept going like out to the farthest fringe I could find. I'd be like, well, the logical end to this is, <laughs> and so I'd been through the punk scene, and I'd been through anarchists, and I was like, oh, I think I'm going to get a sex change. So I started hanging out with queer, radical people. And then just really trying to understand, like, oh, my God, so many things have happened since then. This was before Occupy Wall Street, let alone Black Lives Matter, let alone Obama's entire administration and what's happening with Trump now and, like, We've had bombings and assassinations and chaos and so many things and good things and wonderful things and the environment and everything, and I'm constantly reading the news being like, oh no, how does this make sense? How does this tie into history? And this book has been my way of trying to make sense of it and trying to understand like actual people in it.
2: So what sense have you made of it all?
1: I think that it ends up coming back to like such cliched things that they don't make any sense when you say them because they're so overused. And then when you see it, you're like, oh no, this actually is the right answer. I feel like that with AA slogans. I've had a lot of friends in AA and sometimes I'm with them and I'm like, oh my God, easy does it. It makes sense. Hmm. i just like, it's like a wash of words because it doesn't make any sense because you've heard it so often, and you're like, oh, no, this actually is very helpful in this moment. And for me, like, politically, events and people are very complicated. People's perspectives are influenced by their communities and the way they were raised and their experiences, but also by their inner worlds. And the best thing is to probably have as much compassion for people as possible, without letting them bulldoze you or other people, which, you know, you could put on a pillow and embroider it. I've, I was like, that
2: could be a really important thing to write on a bumper sticker and share, but it it yeah. matters.
1: Love everyone, the bumper sticker. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I've seen it, but I think it is true. I also think it's true.
2: You've mentioned transitioning while writing this work. Did the work influence? Your transitioning or your transitioning influence the work or back and forth?
1: The latter. Definitely more the latter. Trans issues have changed so much recently. I think if I'd been born 10 years later, I would have transitioned in middle school. I was like a very obviously trans kid. I told my parents when I was five, which I very distinctly remember, that when I grew up, I would have a sex change and cut my breasts off as soon as I had them and I asked them to call me by a masculine version of my given name and Robin for a while, because I was very excited about Robin Hood when I was five. I thought he was very cool. And kids like that now, especially if in the Bay Area where there's an awareness of stuff, um, tend to only have one puberty. I worked at a progressive elementary school. We had multiple trans kids. So it, it seemed like a solid trajectory When I found the lesbian community, especially like the butch lesbian community when I was a teenager, I stepped out a little bit from that wanting to transition because I was like, oh, I can just be like this. This fits pretty well, and I can hang out with these people. And then I spent, until I was about 20, right when I was 20, being like, no, actually, I think I'm going to transition still. I feel like a man. So... I started socially transitioning from 20 to 23. And then when I was 23, I went on hormones. So a lot of things happened I was 20. I started this book, I moved to Santa Cruz, and I started to transition.
2: You bring up the history of San Francisco, which in this ahistoric country, to remind people— wasn't just hippies, right, in San Francisco, you listed, the Zodiac Killer, a dozen black liberation groups, the SLA of Patty Hearst kidnapping fame, a dozen more leftist groups, FBI and CIA domestic espionage, Reverend Jim Jones People's Temple, and the zebra killings, in which a nation of Islam members went on a racially motivated killing spree. So you weren't only making sense of your personal life, but the intersection of your personal life with these great pushes, as you put it, political changes. Could you tell me how they made sense in your life?
1: Mm -hmm. I think part of that is just temperament, and definitely of an obsessively researching temperament, and if I learn about one thing, I learn about one figure, like Stokely Carmichael maybe, and I'm like looking at his life Then I'm like, oh, well now I need to learn everything about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which means I need to learn everything about American history since it started, because it all connects and it all just goes, and so for me the problem is stopping. I've done so much research for this book, and I was like, oh, no, this also has relevance, and so I need to learn all about this figure, all of us. I've read literally now hundreds of books and articles and interviews and watched documentaries about this specific era in history, and it's hard because I keep wanting to pull back. I usually have to draw a hard line at World War One for historical stuff. I know so much stuff went into World War One, but I'm just like, no. I know World War I happened, and then I can like trace the pinballs going from there about world history. Uh, I think I'm partially interested because I did grow up in San Francisco, I grew up in an immigrant community. Uh, my mom's German. My dad immigrated from the USSR when he was a teenager, and the history of Europe, the recent history of Europe post-World War II, I think felt very present. And then I lived in a predominantly Cantonese-speaking immigrant district. My elementary school was Cantonese-to-English immersion. And I remember very clearly in school, like, bringing in the immigrant histories. We went to Angel Island, where Chinese people were kept in very difficult situations for up to six weeks with the Chinese Exclusion Act. and. I remember learning a lot about this intersection, seeing that ongoing presence of the 60s and what people think of at the 60s, and especially watching San Francisco change so much in my lifetime. So I was born in 1989, and the city has had two dot-com bubbles now, and like booms and busts, and now is topping, the last time I checked, the rents for the entire country. So it's the most expensive place to live in the entire country. Um, so watching all of this has just felt very relevant and definitely when I want to understand myself, I end up looking to my parents, which ends up looking to how history's impacted their lives and my family.
2: So you mentioned the book takes you through places where we see people impacted by the laws and changing laws, the government, in this current administration Right now, what was the progress that had been made to make all people safe doing the simplest human act, going to the bathroom, is now threatened. In the context of that and your work coming out, what do you hope will happen to audience members who, who hear your work and maybe not have thought about a lot of things?
1: Going back to my political theory of empathy, I really hope that what I can do is build empathy. The biggest goal I have is to have very nuanced and human people and for the reader to be able to relate to those characters in a way that they're not only fully human, but, like, relatably human, and that their lives matter.
2: Tell me about one of your favorite characters whose life matters.
1: In my work? Of course. hmm One of the characters I enjoyed the most writing in the book is a woman named Christina who comes from working class rural Northern California and moves to San Francisco with this like very golden idea of the city as like a feminist paradise who's reacting against her upbringing and ends up getting a degree in women's studies and getting into sex work through stripping and becoming an activist, and engaging with political organization and having, like, a complex life and who's engaging with a whole lot of different characters, who ends up dating a trans person and ends up giving aid to people, whether or not they're asking for it. And one of the reasons I think of this character is when I sent out the first drafts, I got a response from readers when they were like, She just felt very human, and with the list of her identity and her job stripping, I was talking to some people who would be ready to write a person like that off more and talking to people who were surprised and who were like, oh, I hadn't thought about these reasons or I hadn't thought about how this might work or I was just really attached to this character and I never thought I would be for someone like that. That was nice to hear.
2: I want to ask you, circling back to... In these times, these troubling times, if you would imagine a single person, a young person, right now, picking up your work, what character do you hope will rescue them in some way?
1: I really hope that it's the collection of them. I really hope that it's the combination because like seeing the successes and mistakes of different people, for them to be able to compile what works for them out of the options, and then also to hopefully carry some feeling of empathy with the rest of them, because I hope that empathy can go with them in the world. That's probably one of the most useful tools they can have.
0: Now, we'll hear a selection from Calvin's live reading.
1: I'm gonna read an excerpt that is in the middle of a novel I've been working on for a while. And this excerpt is following a character named Ryan, who's a transgender man, female to male transgender, who came from a very upper-middle-class background in Southern California. And so what you need to know going in is that his birth name, the the name his parents gave him, was Lucy. And then in college, before he transitioned male, he started going by Lucid and became an anarchist and more of a radical, and eventually dropped out of college, lost contact with his family, transitioned, And this starts right when he's coming back to Southern California for the first time in about a decade. The bedroom, dusted and aired by the maids, was otherwise as he recalled. Anarcho-feminist books on the shelf, CDs and hand-stapled zines denouncing the government, everything, complicit systems of thought. Lucid's things, which were extensions of her look, of an identity so combative that no one, Least of all, Lucid herself had the energy to peel back the layered spikes and opinions, shielding the miserable core. It disturbed him to find things this way, disturbed him that his parents, whether from laziness or sentiment, hadn't converted it to a guest room. Painful to find the flyers she'd hoarded from protests and shows in LA, to see the quotes on her wall, Gandhi with Butler and MLK. A riot is the language of the unheard. Vestiges of Lucy, too, confused and trying too hard. Fourteen-year-old Lucy in her soccer cleats and ponytail, wanting so much to fit in. Doing sports because admissions officers looked at those things and because, starting in middle school, there'd been a certain pressure to think of college. Harvard, Stanford, Yale. To make extracurriculars count, to volunteer, get the SAT prep for competitive scores. He, she hit puberty late. Some girls had breasts by 11. Lucy's puckered out at 13. And even then, they took a year to fill out, a year to get past the trainer. She wanted them, but didn't want them. Grew a foot and never grew more. Quit soccer and joined the field hockey team. Uncomfortable, awkward Lucy, so unwilling to blossom, so woebegone in her skin. Lucy, who couldn't bring herself to change in front of the lockers, who undressed in one of the bathroom stalls until the others noticed and taunted, who learned to change bras out from under her shirt, change shirts from under a hoodie who wore the same oversized sweatshirt each day, hood up, headphones on, dislocated from the experience of her body, who couldn't get past the shortness of those field hockey skirts, who kept tugging them down, and finally traded with Stacy, a beautiful girl who was bigger than her and didn't mind showing her thighs, fixing the oversized waist with a belt so it wouldn't fall down. Coach telling her that the uniform shouldn't cover her knees. Kelly telling Christy that Lucy watched her while she changed. Stacy telling Christy telling Kelly that Lucy wanted to smell her old skirt, that she was, like, totally obsessed with her or something. Lucy's mom getting a promotion, working 70 hours a week and finishing a bottle of wine each night on her own coach telling her that not every sport's a good fit, pulling her off for the private talk, saying, with a snideness she felt but couldn't verbally catch, that Lucy might do better with rugby, with softball. She'd never failed at anything, never been told that she couldn't do something before, was an anxious, high-achieving kid, less rich, maybe, than Parnevu classmates, but had genuine Mayflower ancestors back in her line. I mean, what an asshole he'd be if he'd been born male. Everything given, everything handed over, and him being told his whole life that's what he deserved, that others suffered because they'd earned it, and he benefited in the same way. Lucy's utter denial about anything having to do with her body her father getting the maid to sit down for a talk about shaving her legs, about getting new clothes, a real bra, something with underwire, built to do more than flatten them down. <laughs> her father brought her to the mall and left her to pick out the clothes, left her at one of the teeny bop shops with their pinks and their whites and their floral capris, with their jewelry and the half belly shirt saying Princess or Divine. He left her with the sales girl who took her into a stall. And the sales girl measured her chest, her bare chest, saying, you don't have to be nervous. The sales girl wearing low rising jeans with a belly button bar, indenting her shirt with the lipstick and all the rings on saying, you're so pretty. It's such a waste to hide it under boy's clothes. The girl's nails clicking across the tape measure under her breasts and over them, cold on her nipples, measuring, chilling it all. It's fine to be a tomboy, but you want to look pretty sometimes. The two of them, standing in that little booth with the full-length mirror, having to look at her body, at the way her hips mushroomed out, how her jeans didn't fit, how her breasts had purple stretch marks that she didn't know would fade, how her hair wasn't long or short but a mess, how the sales girl wrote numbers on a pad, her whole life on that pad, and how the sales girl wore tampons, probably, not stupid big diaper pads, how her period hurt, and she hated the smell, but she still didn't like to shower, because in the shower you took your clothes off, and she was the last girl to wear a whole bathing suit in her grade, a one-piece instead of bikinis, and the other girls, they were flirting with boys, and she and Christy used to be friends, Used to play with blocks and horses, and the sales girl was touching her body, and she hated it because it happened too soon. The changes happened too soon, and she didn't want to be wrong. She didn't want the sales girl to move that tape from her chest. She wanted the butterfly nails to touch her. She wanted the hands to move lower in a way her body understood, but she didn't. But it did, and it wanted it, and she wanted her, and she hadn't looked at anyone else in the lockers, but they knew they could smell it on her. They'd known a dyke when they saw one. And Lucid wove it into a story for college. Surviving homophobic teammates, quitting field hockey, those early desires for girls. She disappointed her parents by choosing Bryn Mawr, a girls' school before, when she was younger, that seemed fine. But now, having their crew-cut daughter attend a women's college, with her baggy pants and the men's clothes, with the metal shoved through her eyebrow, somehow that didn't look good. A little too feminist a little extreme, especially with her classes. She took social politics and gender studies, used US activist movements, civil rights through Vietnam as her history credit. She remembered coming home on break and purposefully baiting her parents, pulling the books out of her bag and leaving them on the table. Histories of oppression throughout the world, how the Victorians colonized gender, There were essays from a black power poet talking about the hippies, about all these middle-class, college-educated white kids who woke up one day and realized that the whole system was fucked, that all their privileges and money and good jobs and bright futures and access were fucked, realizing the sensation or the horror of segregation and imperialism that other people, through no fault of their own, lacked the same power, and then they dropped out. Instead of using that privilege to help other people, they did their best to throw it away. Said no to the family money, no to the useful jobs. Tried to alleviate guilt through a social lowering, which did what? How did that help anyone if the oligarch kids disinherited themselves, went to food banks, moved into vans, and sold drugs? How? How, he wondered. Did Lucid read that? How did she write a paper on it and not learn? What was wrong with her? She could have taken that very expensive liberal arts education and become a lawyer. He'd be in the ACLU by now. He'd be a public defender, but no, not Lucid. That was too good for her. She had to hitchhike and get arrested. She had to squat. She felt virtuous, denouncing her background that way. No, Ryan had to fix the mistakes. Get his doctorate, become a surgeon. He'd take transgender patients at the community clinic. He would use that big fat medical paycheck and he'd spread the money around. He already had an associate's degree. The classes he dropped didn't matter. It was time to get over it. He had to reconnect with his family, worm through the nepotism and connections, and get into a top school.
0: Sound Pages is a Jackstraw production. The 2017 curator of this program is Jordan Amani Keith. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keen. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Steve Griggs Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program, the Jackstraw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, 4 Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jackstraw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.